Hi, everyone. It's February 14th, 2008. Happy Valentine's Day. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neurobiology podcast. I'm Salma Karashi. This week's discussion features the work of John Lane, who is an assistant professor of behavioral neurobiology at the University of Cincinnati. John, who is a neurothologist, spent some time filling us in on homing behavior and mechanisms of path integration in the fiddler crab. Thanks for listening. Joining us on our panel, we have our uh, group of regulars today, actually. We have Charlie Wilson. Hi. Fidel Santa Maria. Hello. Carlos Palladini. I am dateless on Valentine's Day. <laughs> Michael Ferris. Hello. And Rama Retnam. Hi. So for more content <coughs> on our speaker and our panel, please visit our website at snrp.utsa.edu. John, you study the sensory and motor mechanisms of path integration um, using fiddler crabs as, as a model system. Could you first simply define path integration for our listeners as you approach it? Sure. Path integration is um, a sensory motor process by which animals remember or have stored in some representation in their in their memories um, their location physically relative to um, another location that they have previously been. And they do this by um, essentially measuring all of their locomotion that, that they did since they left the previous point, um, and they continuously add, it, add up the locomotion um, so that at any particular time they have an updated version of this vector that points from where they are to, the, to, to back home. So it's, it's continuous um, and, and kind of uh, smooth. I would, you could think of it as being a... In, in your work, you found that fiddler crabs have a largely egocentric mechanism that dictates path integration, I guess in terms of the homing behavior that they do as they return to their burrows after foraging for food. So they don't, that means that they don't rely on environmental cues to find their way home. So could you just maybe talk about that work a little bit and, and, and based on your results, could you kind of outline what the predominant influences are on homing behavior for fiddler crabs on this path integration sure. behavior? Um, the interesting thing about the, the fiddler crabs is, is that um, if you look at, at navigation and homing uh, studies across phyla for the last several uh, decades, one common theme throughout most uh, studies is that there's not just one set of cues that's used and one mechanism that's used. There are many, and they're usually used in a hierarchical fashion. Um, for instance, our primary, uh, our, we humans have as a, our primary way of, of identifying where we are and remembering um, how to get back to the office, for instance, um, recognition of, of landmarks and, and sort of complex sets of landmarks is you know, being recognizable as the hallway that we're familiar with, etc. Only when those kinds of cues, which are these sort of high-level recognition cues, are removed are we capable of doing something like path integration. We are capable of doing path integration. We can have um, our, uh, we can be blindfolded, uh, folded, etc., and, and just sort of led along a, a convoluted path. And we're sort of good at trying to find our way back to the starting point just f by measuring our own locomotion. The strange thing about fiddler crabs is that their primary um, way of finding home again is path integration. And only after the path integration fails do they attempt to use some other mechanism that we, we may put first. 
none of the animals that I have, have studied appear to use something like, like landmarks. Um, but there are lots of reports, there's studies on, on um, other species, in, in particular in Panama, where they're showing that, in fact, the males, um, after their path integration mechanism has failed, they can use landmarks. Um, so, to get to, to, get to your, your question about the egocentric and uh, uh, nature of their path integration mechanism, um, this is, I think, a, kind of a, a, a new idea to the path integration field, the, the notion that um, not all path integration is, is egocentric. Uh, usually path integration is introduced in the first line of the paper or chapter about path integration as being a, quote, uh, egocentric uh, sensory motor mechanism by which an animal remembers its location. Um, in my view, that uh, an egocentric process, that, that, that phrase itself doesn't make sense to me. In fact, the only thing egocentric about the, the path integration system, um, it can only, I would argue, be egocentric if it results in purely egocentric uh, memory. And it doesn't always result in purely egocentric memory. Um, the desert ants, one of the best studied path integration, path integrating animals, uh, many of the uh, many people would th would think that it has an egocentric system, but I would argue it does not, because um, you can pick up the animal, unlike the fiddler crabs, um, and physically rotate it ninety degrees, and it will not make a ninety degree error when it returns home. It will turn back 90 degrees and go home. And that's because for direction, it looks at the sky. It sees polarized light in the blue sky and it sees the sun. And so you can't, you can't uh, fool them in, uh, by changing their, their orientation this way. And their, their vector is not what I would call egocentric. It has an allocentric reference. And um, what I found for these fiddler crabs though, is that if I do rotate them, they make a, uh, uh, an equivalent error, and thus, and, and I can do this. I can do this under under any conditions. I can do it under bright blue skies, uh, sun available. I can even uh, put a polarizing filter over the top of them, giving them very, very strong uh, polarized light e vector direction information that they could use if you know that they would use if they if they were. Uh, prone to, to using it. So essentially they, they, uh, <clears throat> they're the, the reason I say that their path integration uh, behavior is really about as egocentric as any system that I've seen is that the sensory information that they appear to use, at least most of the time, is purely internal information, namely information that comes from the senses that are stimulated during their own locomotion. Could you describe some of those inputs, some of those sensory inputs? Sure. So at the at the moment, now that we've we've um, did, to our satisfaction determined that the class of sensory cues that they use is this internal class, and 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 and, and by that I mean I, I'm excluding um, cues that are stable cues outside the animal and have nothing to do with its own locomotion, like the position of the sun. So the internal cues would uh, consist of um, 
the vestibular system providing the animal with information about its, its uh, rotational accelerations. Uh, crustaceans, and especially decapod crustaceans, and especially crabs, have an, a, a vestibular system with very, very analogous to, to our own. And they have two of them, and they're actually oriented at 45, uh, no, 90 degrees relative to each other. I mean, it's a, it's a, they have a, for an invertebrate, they have a spectacular vestibular system. And, um, I, you know, if I, uh, I could show you um, the way the, the vestibular system helps uh, to, in other behaviors, like the stabilizing behaviors I was talking about. Um, also, they have a big array of, of proprioceptors uh, throughout their bodies, and by that I mean either stress or tension or stretch receptors, usually in the legs or, or uh, in the tegument, uh, sort of embedded to, to measure tension. Um, and that gives constant feedback about, about the movements of the legs usually in response to commands to move the legs, so you get feedback about the success or failure of your, of your command and, and, and sort of constantly update, update it. Um, and then finally, there would be vision itself as being one of the, one of the cues. And those are, that's an internal cue because the only the, the, the part of the visual cue that's, that's used is the visual stimulus that occurs as a result of locomotion. So that that is essentially a, a field of, of movement vectors you could you could consider them to be um, motion vectors that sort of streams across the retina as the animal moves that field of motion vectors is the subject of study of lots of clever psychophysicists um, and because it is the source of a lot of spatial information for for uh, humans and monkeys and, and so forth so one of the things that's really struck me about um, your studies of this was the separation of storing the distance component of the home vector versus the angular component. And you make a point of them being different and being calculated in different ways and using sort of different information. And, but your experiments actually show that they're independent of each other because you can mess up one of them and the other one stays intact. Precise. So the, the, there's reason to suspect that the memory for the distance component and the memory for the angular component are separately stored somehow by the fiddler crab and are in some ways independent pieces of information. Is that, is that the way you're thinking about it? Thanks for saying that, because I'd always thought about it that way without analyzing my, my belief in that. And now that you put it that way, I'm, 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 um, I'm actually for the first time considering it a really interesting notion that these things are... It's difficult to say that they're unrelated, uh, because at least as far as my uh, supposedly correct algorithm goes, uh, you can't compute one without the other when you, you when you update your vector. But you're right in that I can manipulate one and leave the other intact. And I and I it does raise the question about the the independence or not of these as they are I don't know if I, I would say represented, but perhaps stored in memory. Um, 
And if anyone has any brilliant questions about that philosophical issue, so um, <clears throat> I think this it's that difference is fairly interesting. And one thing that strikes me is that it seems that algorithmically the keeping track of the angle is actually very simple. I mean, what you seem to propose is that um, the the memory of the direction to home is reflected in the um, the position of the eye, and the animal just keeps track of. Um, how he turns and each time he compensates and there is just one register that stores w w which way home is and um, if the animal's eye is rotated relative to that then he's going to make an error. That, so I think the register that stores which way home is is the angle of the body and that the, and that the eye movement was a sort of temporary thing that says there's an error and then the animal's body would rotate to remove that error and now the angle of the body is pointing in the correct way for home. So there's no need to use a memory register, right. <laughs> whatever right. the biological equivalent that would be, uh, to store that, right. because it's stored in the state of that. So, mm -hmm. right, so in that, sense, that part of memory is completely peripheral. And then there is a temporary register where when there is a, pre, a, a, a rotation that hasn't been corrected yet by yes. the body's rotation, which is the angle of the eye relative to right. the body. and that's kind of stored in the state of the eye stock. Right. And so one of the um, questions that w I was wondering is, is it possible that the entire thing's peripheral in the sense that actually the that angle, that temporary error between body orientation and home orientation is read off directly by the proprioception in the eye stock? Or, I mean, could it be as simple as that? That would account for forgetting it. I would... If I were building a crab robot, that's exactly what I would do. And I would make sure that that proprioceptor in the eye stock was well calibrated. Because it, it really um, would then mediate uh, a lot of things, including just a sense of, of visual direction. In the 1960s, um, the, there was a, a, a lab, I believe at St. Andrews, where they were working on uh, crab sensory motor integration and eye movements in particular, and they looked for any evidence at all for proprioceptors in the eye stalks and in the, the, the joints of the eye stalks, and they found none. Now, that's crazy, I think, um, and, and that was one of the, one of the uh, things that I spent much of my graduate career scratching my head about was, here you have what essentially is your primary, major, most important sensory mode, vision. And you put all of your visual sensors up on highly mobile uh, arms, right, these eye stalks, and you let them move around relative to your body. And you don't actually put a sensor in there to tell you, you where the eyes are relative to the body so that you can respond with, you know, appropriate motor activity. But that seems to be the case, that they, that their, the eye position is not registered by any kind of proprioception. So how did they determine that, though? It seems like um, because of the nature of the exoskeleton, like if the eye stalk bends, there's going to be some mm -hmm. sort of complex uh, stresses put on the exoskeleton nearby. So like, where mm -hmm. would you look to be sure that, there, that that information was not available to some sort of proprioceptor? It might not actually have to be 
you know, yeah, we don't have stocks, appropriate so. sectors to keep track of our active. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't the visual information itself provide the, that information of the position well, the of the stock? The motor information. So you mean by, by, by looking well, at if, its if own had, body? Yeah, no, by, by, by just okay, looking at, its, at the proprioceptive, the, the convergence of proprioceptive information of its own body versus the visual information or the motor information of the stocks themselves. So if you turn, if you know they're, they seem to be pretty well adapted to be able to turn their bodies aligned with their burrows, right? Mm -hmm. And if they're not looking in that direction, there's a change in the visual flow, then that visual flow information is information that the eye stock is moving in a certain direction. Or Right, so but, they would integrate just, that to get final if they integrated integrate the that, velocity, yeah. you could get yeah, position get of the eyes and, then and somehow correctly identify location. But, I, mean, all, all I, I don't know if that's the way it happens with crabs. No, I don't but know anything about crabs, but that is a potential way to. It is a yes. You, you don't have to you know, compute all, all that, right? I mean, you just have to have um, an innate memory. Right? Yeah, all, I'm, all I'm saying is you don't necessarily your need proprioceptive uh, information. So right? I, here in the center, right? Think about how we do this stuff, right? Because Charlie's right that we. Don't primarily, right? Use. But there's a kind of a good reason for that. I mean, well, because there's... we don't have much inertia. You only need proprioception in inertial parts of the body. Use proprioception to manage inertia. The eyes have almost no inertia, therefore you don't need proprioception. They go to the place that you commanded them to go to because they don't have much inertia to oppose it. The eyes don't have any intrinsic dynamics to speak of. So if I know where I tried to move my eyes to. I know where I moved my eyes to. Mm -hmm. so all I have to do is keep track of my motor command. And I know where my eyes are. Mm -hmm. And the eye, the crab must be also relatively a low inertia device. Certainly is, yeah. yeah. They're, they're tiny little eye stalks. I'm not sure if it's just that, though. I mean, it's also, if you're on an eye stalk, then you can imagine that there is the possibility, depending upon exactly what the physical characteristics of the stalk are, some possibility of motion of the eye stalk in, aside from what you commanded it, right? I mean, it's on a stalk that... And so it seems like, um, <laughs> well, you know, it just it seems like they, attaches, it's possible, it. depending upon the details of what the ISOC really like, that the thing can move without um, a motor command. So I think that's kind of an interesting question, whether or not you could read off the position, the orientation of the ISOC by just recording the activity of the motor neurons that control its orientation. It's not, it seems like that's an open question. No, that's been done. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the... the uh, the motor neurons that supply the, our audience is going to have to forgive me if I get this wrong, this is an old paper, um, that the, the motor neurons that supply the, the uh, eye muscles, the eye stock muscles are, they code for position, not, not velocity. So you could um, just read off where the, where the animal is attempting to put its eyes. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. you're not, you're not, I don't know if that's what you were getting at. Um, it's definitely a part of it. And then I guess then the next question is, is there any possibility for like wind or something like, or some other form of motion that would make the eye stalk deviate from where the motor command was telling it to go? How yeah. elastic is the eye stalk? It's extremely elastic in, uh, it's, I guess, three degrees of, of, of uh, movement. It can rotate around its long axis and it can pitch and it can roll um, and and well I guess rotation around its long axis is more like a yaw um, so it's extremely movable and, and and that gets it I guess my my 
amazement that it's not directly measured. Its its position is not directly measured because even in a mud flat, um, the terrain is not completely flat, especially to a two centimeter long animal. Um, so it ends up having large deviations from horizontal of its body, but the eyes are still maintained absolutely uh, vertical in space. So the body has a 45 degree tilt, the eyes counter tilt, and they're always held in the same uh, sort of vertical orientation. And that's an interesting fact in itself. I, I don't know about how they, I guess what we've been discussing is how they kind of know where their, their, their eyes are in the, in the horizontal plane. In the vertical plane, I'm not sure they know either, except that what I can tell you is that they make, they make some big assumptions about where their eyes are, perhaps like humans do, where they tell their eyes to, to do something, they sort of work on the assumption, perceptually work on the assumption that that's exactly what the eyes just did. Um, so for instance, um, the eyes are rigidly held vertical in nature, uh, despite body tilt. Um, and they do this uh, a, a couple of different ways. So they get them vertical using a couple of different cues. One is, the, the most powerful one, is, is the view of the horizon. So they just sort of look out over the, this vast beach or mud flat, and they can sort of see it receding into the horizon. And they fixate that with this sort of uh, equatorial area, uh, part of the retina. Once they've fixated that, um, they, so they will then oppose deviations using uh, the feedback of a visual, the sort of a vertical optokinesis. Uh, so they tend to oppose vertical motions of the visual field by tilting to stop, uh, I guess, backward or forward tilt or roll. But also the same feed forward signals from uh, uh, the statuses of the vestibular system that indicates body tilt. And where I'm going with this, is that um, in 98, I wrote a, up a study. This was one of them that I did in, in my uh, graduate, for my graduate degree, is that if I could get them to fixate to a horizon that was a false horizon, that was not actually horizontal, but was tilted away from horizontal by 15 or 20 degrees, I could change their, their, their responses to, uh, to targets. Um, in, in other words, primarily, I could shift their responses to target by 15 degrees in, in roll. Meaning so, they would respond to a target as if it were in a different place than the place exactly, it really was. Exactly. So what, what, what happens uh, in nature, and one of the reasons that they're, uh, you have to be much more careful working with them, much more ginger, I would say, uh, than with the desert ants or something, is that they're extremely vigilant. And they're very hard to catch. The reason for this is because they have 360-degree panoramic vision, so you can't sneak up on them. <laughs> In fact, they even have that if they're missing one eye. Well, there's one eye has 360-degree panoramic vision, and it goes up to 85 degrees up and 78 degrees down. There's no part of the visual field in which you're going to sneak up on them. So, um, what we what we found was that they're they're uh, they're very frightened of any moving targets in the ventral part of the visual world. And they're completely unfrightened by any moving targets in the, sorry, dorsal part of the visual world. That makes more sense. That's where birds would be and, and me. Um, 
and completely unfrightened by any moving targets in the ventral part of the visual world. And my question was, is it the dorsal part of the visual world or is it the dorsal part of the retina uh, that, that in which they interpret things as scary? And um, what I found was that if I could get them to tilt their eyes by 15 degrees from vertical, vertical is the normal position, but I can put in a stripe inside this, this uh, chamber and, I don't know, maybe 40 to 50% of the animals that I put into a cup in the middle would visibly tilt their eyes over. And you could, it's quite, quite clear when you see it in, in person. Suddenly, the region of space in which a target was scary just shifted by, by that amount. It was nice that 50% of them did tilt their eyes and 50% of them didn't, perhaps because you know, there's, a, there's a, a tension there between the vestibular system saying gravity's that way and you need to point it this way, and the visual saying, system saying you need to tilt. So some of them did, some of them didn't. The ones that didn't uh, maintained, even in the presence of this false tilted horizon, maintained the scary area as being everything in the sort of upper dorsal visual hemisphere. Um, the tilters had everything tilt. So now even objects that were physically below the animal and would normally be in the ventral visual field became scary. So you were measuring escape behavior in that yep. situation. Yep. So yeah. So they would they're in this little glass cup and and uh, it's they they quickly go from eating the food that I put in, in there to running really, really fast and scrabbling at the side. And, and, and they do it in a directed way. They even do it in a, in a, in a, with feedback so that if a target moves around like this, they actually change their direction of scrabbling at the, at the wall. Uh, so it's pretty clear that I can you know, score them as being scared or not being scared. Um, so that was interesting because what it meant was um, that scary uh, for a visual target was really dependent on what part of the retina it was visualized in. Um, and the only way that can work in, out in nature is that they work very hard or, or very successfully at keeping that part of the, you know, the scary part of the visual field pointed at the part of the world that contains scary things. Now, the last thing you want to do is you know, be scared away by your conspecifics, your potential mates, the guy who's trying to steal your burrow, uh, Etc. So, there's a, a interesting, I guess, story about eye position where I was unable to show that they uh, kind of updated or knew, at least in the context of this behavior, knew that their eyes were not vertical. They just shifted all of the scary stuff down with their eyes. With things, the scary part of the visual world was just locked to the retina. Um, and you would think that if, it, it, you know, our, they also have these uh, interneurons that respond to, uh, to movement in small areas of visual space that are, um, that are space constant, meaning their receptive field actually exists in, in visual space, not on part of the retina. So every time the eye moves, the, the, uh, the input photoreceptor array shifts. So you still, that cell is still looking out at that part of the visual field. Apparently my behavioral experiment wasn't, wasn't sort of 
triggering that kind of, of cell because they were apparently unaware that their eyes had just tilted over by 20 degrees. Or, or Those That's space exactly constant cells, incidentally, have, have, have not been studied since I, Altram in 1971 or something like that. Um, and now, with better techniques and, and better theory, they're just uh, ripe for for uh, looking at you know these questions of of uh, sort of sensory motor and I would say and add add perceptual integration and how these things work together. So this reminds me of something that I that I was thinking about is going over your work and that is we um, we usually create the in our minds or maybe that it's really there. We imagine that there are these layers of abstraction, uh, representations that become more and more independent of the periphery. So that, like what you were just talking about, that is a, a neural image of the world that's independent of eye direction, for example, that would follow the, the retina in the hierarchy of visual areas. And we abstract out memory the same way. So we imagine there's a motor systems that act on memory and sensory systems that collect information that goes into memory, but memory itself we imagine is being stored in a in a more abstract domain. And so um, t twice you've said something that made me think that the crab was violated in this way of thinking about things. So there it's mapped its um, escape response and its motor behavior directly onto a retina-dependent representation not maybe it has a uh, eye movement independent representation of the visual world, but it wasn't using it for that. And then uh, the I really thought that this business about storing the vector home, the directional component of the vector home, it almost doesn't require, as we were saying earlier, as Michael was saying, maybe there isn't really a abstract memory required for that. That the animal is using its state to store that. So, and two states, one of them the orientation of its body, and so it always keeps its body oriented in the direction of home or in the opposite direction of home, that's good enough to know which way home is. And if every time you move, you maintain that, you don't have to remember it anywhere. And the only yep. violation of that was when you moved the visual world so that the eye shifted and you got a, a sort of uh, optokinetic response, and then, but then that would be followed by movement of the body. And if it wasn't followed by movement of the body, it basically didn't work. For example, if the, if the eye moved twice and did nystagmus, then the first movement was completely forgotten. Yeah. So uh, everything is about that, seemed to me, for the superficial way I was hearing it and reading it, that, uh, to say that the animal doesn't need a memory really a memory to remember the direction home. It's storing that in its physical state somehow, two ways, a quick one for the eye movement and a slower one for the body movement. Yeah, brilliant. I, I, I love that way of thinking about but it. Actually. Yeah. But distance. But distance Distance has to be stored somewhere, you know, on a server somewhere uh -huh. um, and, and constantly updated. Direction? Yeah. No, I, I agree. They They... <clears throat> if they have some monitor of the of the instantaneous state of the optomotor loop, that they can just monitor that all the time and know, I know that 
there, it, it, I currently have a five degree deviation between my eyes and body. That's all they need. They don't, they're, they're going to have that anyway, incidentally, because, because, you know, most of us do have uh, complex sensory motor systems. Um, so yeah, I like, I like that. that so in fact, they don't have to, they don't have to, I'm going to, Acknowledge you. <laughs> they don't have to actually the, uh, store the, the angle of the vector. <laughs> yeah, so how I guess about that's the, what I'm, that's, how about that's distance? Because distance seems more complicated to me. And uh, for one thing, you pointed out that the animals are brilliant about distance. So if they, if you increase the distance home by changing by putting a hill so that they go up and down, but not changing it in the horizontal direction. They will compensate for that. So they have stored the distance home in some really flexible and interesting way. And in all the experiments that you've done that I know about, which is probably not a very large proportion of the total, but in the experiments that I know about, you have perturbed their direction system really well and explored what those perturbations do. And I wonder about perturbations in, the, in distance. So in one experiment, you they start out, uh, they, they walk away from their burrow, they stand on this little platform, and then you scoot the platform while they stand still, and then they don't go all the way home. So it's clear that their the information about distance is generated by their own movements, and that's the information that they're using, and that's the point that you made with that. Uh, what else do we know about about distance? How the distance is stored? How well, well, I, I want to rephrase your question. How much do we know about uh, motor units? I mean, what is a step in crab world? <laughs> it's more complicated than in human world. Um, they have eight walking legs, and True, but, but do they I stop? Have... I mean, do you have a unit? Because I can imagine a very abstract. Uh, networking, which just, you just have units of neurons in which you calculate a certain distance and you turn on a feedback system uh, and your cell starts firing and that only says do this unit of motor distance. Yeah, that only works in, in total distance travel. But that's what they do. No, not total distance travel because they change directions as they're walking around. And they remember the distance. No, they only have the, to remember the, the distance as the crow flies to their burrow, not the distance that they actually. Well, travel. you can calculate that, and that is your distance. You're just you're just uh, telling yeah, so not how an, much you have to. It's, it's, not, motor, not, the, the, it's not a the number total of integration. Units, you're you are calculating the direct pathway to home. That's my understanding. I mean, you can you can go around in circles, yeah. but you, what the animal is doing, and that's a com the complex part, is to calculate the vector. Yeah. The direct vector then, to whom? But then the angle and the distance are related. Yes. You can't just in your, count steps. In your, sense, in your sense. You can't just and count steps. You have to have counted. You can't steps. just count steps. Right. Yeah. But once you, you solve that, the only thing that you have to store is an absolute number. Because the angle is given by the direction of the body. So whenever you want to flee... It's solved. The problem is solved. You right. just you just speed I, in the I, opposite I, direction of your body. That's the only that's thing. True, you only have to store one number. True, one you, number. Yeah, but, but that number has to be changed every time the animal does anything as it goes along. It has to be uh, modified. 
any any little turn and twist because there are a million ways that you could have got that distance from home and every one of them is different right. and so you might have gone a long way around and you're X distance from home, or you went a short way around in your X distance from home. So you can't just know how far you went. You have to know details about the path that you took to get there. Right. That's so the the I, could you describe or define what you mean by motor units? You're oh, so motor units. Let's assume that you have that um, you have a series of uh, a neural network that whenever it fires, you're going to move your what, how many? Eight, ten legs? Eight. Eight. Um, one cycle. Sure. All of them in a specific arrangement, like a robot, right? I see. So you can store you, units of this. What you mean is properly motor primitive, not a yeah, motor unit. Exactly. Motor unit yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm more primitive. All the muscles, okay. Right. So you just have to store how many of these things you need to return home. Right. Right? And that could be bo uh, the size of the body of the animal, right? Right, right. Or... Yeah, a motor primitive. Right. So that's so now we're completely away from a vector at all, right? There's no there's, because there's, the vector is not needed it here. Has because no direction it's, it's and solved. now it has. You just store uh, one. Not number. even a distance. It has a number of motor units that's analogous to a distance. Mm -hmm. But if that's the case, now I'm wondering if a, an animal built that way, um, if that animal could deal with detours forced detours around an obstacle. But that's a different, I mean, that, that is, I mean, that's a different ganglion, right? Well, I mean, you can imagine this animal. Imagine. Why isn't it the same as uh, That's a hypothesis. <laughs> so what I'm just saying is that... So if, uh, I've got a number of motor units. Um, as one cycle through all my legs taking steps. That's my motor primitive. Um, and I've got, to, I've got to do 10 of them. That's how, that's how far home is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just awesome. have to do 10. Um, but now... Uh-oh, there's a hill I have to go over, and in fact, it's going to take 12. How, so, in this scheme, do I deal with I think this problem, the problem of figuring out how far back it is to home and, how, and taking alternate paths back may be solved by the same mechanism. You can imagine that you've got, let's imagine you just have a neuron that just integrates <laughs> distance, and so every time the animal takes a step, it takes into account angle relative to home and the distance stepped. And, you know, that little neuron is cranked up. And then, so once you decide you're going to turn around and go back home, when you, in keeping track of your progress home, you would be decrementing that, that what you've integrated, right? And so you just have to take off the sum in a way that takes into account angle relative to home. So you're not, you're, you're keeping, you could keep track of the distance yeah. as it declines just exactly the same way, however it was it did when you, when it's it was a minimum energy. That well, I mean, there, the, 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 you've separated the magnitude of the vector from the direction, right? The directions yeah. in the eye stalk. And then whenever this, maybe I, I am, there's some sort of failure of my imagination here. But um, the idea is that every time the animal takes a step, you know, it tries to figure out um, how much to add to that integrator, or this, wherever the sum is kept. It keeps, in, it has to know its angle relative home at the time it took that step. But then that some can be stored in the neuron and it can forget about it. Mm -hmm. And then it just does it in a stepwise manner. Mm -hmm. So every time it takes a step, it, it takes into account the angle of its motion relative to home at that time. So and that then, just means the path integrator is working as it's running home, yeah. and, right. which is something you said earlier, yes. is that yeah, the path integrator... They seem to, to for, do that. For detours, that sounds c completely reasonable to me on a, in a flat world that you can store that only angle you need to know, which is 
the your it, with your body angle or temporarily with the eye relative to the body if that fails and distance I'm not sure positive still exactly how that gets stored but for the vertical one now you your path integrator has to have a way of telling the vertical distance from home as well because you're now going to adjust the distance according to the vertical angle and at least we haven't discussed any mechanism for right. so you, you, you brought up distance as, as yeah. something earlier and and maybe um, get getting at the question of adding a vertical component to distance is a, is a good way to approach that I mean isn't we the, clearly know that they don't just count steps on the way home because they do compensate for the added distance over the hill um, what is unknown is exactly what they change about their locomotion to get over that hill. We don't know um, oh, if they took bigger steps whether the like step that. number has changed, whether the step frequency has changed. Imagine you're going over a hill and the hill is actually a hemisphere and you strike out on your path over the hill right directly down the center. Turns out that to get straight over the hill you don't have to change your gait at all from what you would have, would have done on a flat surface. But now imagine striking out on your path off-center and if you maintain the exact same gait, i.e. Um, walking in a straight line on a flat surface so that your left and right feet take exactly the same size steps, the path that you'll actually take over this hill follows a longitude line. That's the line that you would follow. The crabs don't do that they follow a latitude line, a slice from above right across this. Is this, is this making mm -hmm. sense? Yes. So their gait changes in order to do that. There's something about um, their back legs and their front legs that changes. I don't know what they're changing. It's I, Until recently, I had assumed that, um, well, either the back is traveling slightly farther ground distance in the front or vice versa. One of them is true if the animal's off-center. Now how they make up the ground uh, for the animal, for the end of the body that's actually traveling uh, a longer distance, I don't know. Um, and it could be, I guess, one of, one of two things. Um, either the size of the steps has changed but the, the um, phase relationships remain the same, or they actually allow the phase relationships of pairs of legs to drift relative to each other, which I think is unlikely, but would be a really cool thing. I have a student who's pointing high-speed cameras at running crabs right now and, and trying to get at this question. So you put like little fluorescent dots on the legs and see them move? Can no, all that? we need, all we need and to know and capture? No. They run those suits that they use for the video games. It's a simple yeah. background. The it's, background is just sand. So it's, 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 it's we use content. light sand. We can, we, it's a high definition, high speed camera. No, I just mean to digitize this thing and reconstruct yeah. it and look at the entire movement of the leg. So your method is intended to make contrast between the leg and the background, but if there's plenty of contrast between the leg and the background, anyway. No, I mean to then get rid of the animal in the image and track the position of the legs and if you can do it. super high contrast images. Yeah. Un, 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 unnecessary. All we need to know, but cool. actually, but yeah, cool, cool. And, and more information rich than the data we are gathering, which is just just simply the uh, 
movement frequency of the of the legs. We're, we're not even particularly concerned about where the foot sets down and when it picks up again. Mm. If we can see the leg just doing its oscillation right. and then measure the velocity of the animal, we can get a, a handle on. on so and we do this for all eight legs. In a flat world, and yeah. the animal is compensating for our hills just yeah. by changing its gait. In which case, we wouldn't have to. We and the crab wouldn't have to worry at all about vertical angles, only yeah. horizontal. Well, well I'm ants sure don't that do that, right? Ants, I mean, I, if I remember correctly, the thing in these desert ants is that the original hypothesis was that they look at where the sand dune was, right? Mm. And But then they put these ants in a jigsaw, right? And they actually came from their nest, and walked the same distance that they walk every day, and they, they started to forage somewhere in that platform, right? No, so they, they measured. They compensated they for the. They the, compensated oh, for, okay. for listeners at okay. home. That's not really a jigsaw so much as a a mountain range to a to an ant that they had uh-huh. to the sort of corrugated surface that they had to go over, and the conclusion was, uh-huh. and I will I will uh, uh, say this. The fiddler crabs do it better because if you look at the the uh, they have more legs they have more legs or something they're just a lot more accurate. Um, mm. If you look at the results of the ants, they clearly show that the ants compensate for the mm. increased distance that they had to walk. Um, but the but the cloud of results is is there's great variability, great variability. And there's a lot less variability in, in where the fiddler crab actually stops its home vector run. I didn't actually mention this earlier um, to, to you, uh, but one thing about the, the that particular experiment um, is that if, in fact, we get the animals to run over the hill and the length of the home vector actually, um, by accident, ends up not to be on the other side of the hill, but on the flat ground, but to be like on the hill, uh, that's where the animal stops and searches, even at the base of the hill where the body tilt is 45 to 50 degrees. It still stops there and searches up and down and across that hill right there. So it's a very rigid sort of system. They, they, when, when they can measure body tilt, and they clearly do to get, to get uh, over that hill the right distance, that's my, maybe it's not clear that they do, but it's my impression that they must be measuring body tilt to know, I guess, the size and shape of that hill. Um, but for some reason, that same ability to measure and utilize body tilt doesn't feed into what they decide to do when they hit the end of the home vector. When they hit the end of the home vector and they're standing at a 50 degree angle relative to horizontal, it doesn't occur to them that they shouldn't be standing at a 50-degree angle relative to horizontal. They still are searching for their... So they just haven't there. stored much declarative memory about what home was exactly, like. Exactly, exactly. They've had their homes in many different places. It's like I parked my car at the, <laughs> at the parking lot in the airport. I've been there a zillion times. Yeah. Now I can no longer bother remembering right. where it is. I, just, they, they have, I, I have to ride I would. Now. I would say they, they, they store no declarative memory about the nature of their own home that I have ever been able to pick up because it is so easy to uh, make them believe that 
something that is not their home is their home, and they and they will <laughs> vigorously fight for it and or and or defend it, even though it's you know each of these little boroughs is 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 different, and they are all modified by by new users. That's the first thing that a new crab does when it comes to a, a borough, is is starts doing some um, home improvements and moving things around, moving a lot of sand. You shift an animal, translative a crab, uh, two centimeters to the right, so that in fact now its its home vector hits his neighbor's burrow. That's now his burrow. So home is where the vector points. Is essentially that's it, and there's no. And, uh, yeah, that's so, a, a, just briefly going back to yeah. the, the, the challenge posed by hills, I don't actually understand why this is a problem, because if the eyes are held at a particular orientation relative to the horizon, it seems like it has access, in principle, not just to direction home in the, in the horizontal plane, but also azimuthally, because the eye, I mean, in effect, the eye holds a fixed angle to home in three dimensions, not just yeah, two. Yeah, you mean you mean elevation? Yeah, elevation. Yeah. Um, e yes, but the the measurement of that body tilt by using the the eyes would have to be done in this tricky way again. You you would not be able to just sort of interrogate your proprioceptors because there don't seem to be any. What you would have to do is <coughs> monitor the current state of the vertical optomotor system. And there is one, mm -hmm. and it could conceivably be done the same way to give you body tilt. There's a more direct way to measure body tilt. They have very good vestibular systems with a statolith and, and sitting in a statocyst, much like we have a sacculus and, and a utricle. Or what, no, no, that's the wrong. wrong. It's right, the macula, the otolith. Yeah, ma there you go, the otolith and the macula. And that that's actually... Uh, the, our first shot at this, how they're actually measuring body tilt, and I and I and I gotta, I don't know how much more time we have, but this is, this is a really great experiment that my my student uh, came up with. Um, what we wanted to do was to try to try to manipulate the animal's sense of body tilt, and make it think that it was running up and over a hill, and if. When in fact it wasn't, so that we would get, make them make them run farther than they should. Um, and our first candidate sense organ was the statocyst, because this is a the main gravity sensor. Sorry for interrupting, but wouldn't you just put the uh, a barrel with stripes horizontal and move the barrel as the animal moves forward? Then it's up. That would be optical, and he's trying for vestibular. Oh, okay. yeah, I was trying but, to manipulate the uh -huh. vestibular system. This Sorry. is another option. I could, I could uh, make the eyes tilt this way, and and thus it would maybe indicate that there was a, a, a like a, a body tilt of twenty degrees, and then I could even turn the the drum over so that they're vertical, and then and now we're going down the hill again, right? Right. right. So, and and in a in a completely quantitative way, I could say. At this speed, at this angle, I could sort of reconstruct this hypothetical hill that they were. Yeah, right. yeah. Good I idea. was overwhelmed by my own thoughts. Um, no, but here's so <laughs> the first first shot is the sta the, the statusist, um, and he comes to me with this paper that he found, and I think it's from 1918, and it's in German, and uh, he's uh, I think he's asked a friend of his to give him the gist of what this was about. He knew it was about crabs and statusists. And what the, the basic thing that, that this German guy did was he 
solved what had been no doubt a roaring and contentious debate about crab statuses, um, which was that people had thought that they were hearing organs, and he he showed that they were gravity receptors, and the way he did this was he um, the the statolith the little stone that uh, clump of, of, of fine stones that sits in the cup on this bed of hairs and bends the hairs this way or that to tell uh, body tilt. Every time the, 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 the inside of the statusist is actually exoskeleton and, and they, they molt that every time they molt and so this the, you get a new inside and it has a little pore at the top right after molting and the animal has to replace that statolith every time. I don't know how it does it. I don't know if it picks one up and does it. Well, or uses, uses a real rock rather than a crystal. Yeah. It's, it's an actual idea. rock. Wow. They don't secrete <laughs> this thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, they somehow get it in there, right. and then the pore closes as the as the, the shell hardens. And so this guy, what he did is he, he took the crabs and just put them there in, in their own tank. It was completely devoid of any sand, but it was it had a bottom covered with steel filings, fine steel filings. And sure enough, after a molt, um, he could manipulate the crab's body tilt and its eye tilt and everything with a magnet. That's so <laughs> So my student did this. He actually got he has he has, he got uh, about a dozen fiddler crabs. He waited six months for these guys to do all their molting and everything, and he got a whole bunch of them to replace their statoliths with steel. And he you know he would bring them by and. And we had a good fun, you know, making them flip over on their backs, and, <laughs> and uh, it, it, so it was clear when when he was successful in getting these things replaced. It's pretty obvious if you've got a powerful rare earth magnet, you can, you know, make them flip tip over pretty easily. And then the the challenge was to um, now we have to manipulate the magnetic field, and so that they their their sub subjective gravity vector is is altered from straight down to something not. Straight. At the time, um, what what the plan was was to, to use sort of a subterranean array of rare earth magnets, um, and so we were uh, built a uh, sort of a, a grid over the top of this and, and bought a three dimensional magnetometer and measured the three dimensional magnetic vector at every point on the grid. So I know what the magnetic field looks like over the top of this this array of magnets in great detail and in fact I, I adding that the vector due to gravity to these vectors gives me uh, a shape a sort of a theoretical shape of this sort of field of moguls that the animal would be running over and I, and if I know the shape well enough I can actually calculate the exact distance that the animal would have to do anyway so we took these animals out to the field last summer and tried to get them, you know, these animals that have been in, in, in the lab uh, highly manipulated for months now. And, and, and we tried to get them to, to warm up to a, 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 an actual burrow uh, in, the, in the mud flat. And they did, and they never came out again, ever. Uh, so all of that patient waiting for them to molt and so forth uh, ended up giving us nothing this past summer That's but the saddest we are we are not dissuaded um but what happened i then? just so what they, they well they 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 went to the center of the air they they're <laughs> they're you know we dug after them burrow. some of these burrows are a meter meter and a half two meters deep oh, wow. and um 
if they really don't want to be found, you know, we end up finding a couple of them by digging, and then the next day they pull the same trick, and eventually we got them all lost. They never would come out and behave, and it's You're probably for just the magnetic center of the earth. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there so, but we're not dissuaded. I think I so I, and so I think, I think I'm going to build a great big Helmholtz coil, um, and if it's big enough, then the space in the middle is quite large, and the space in the middle of Helmholtz coil always has a, uh, a quite uniform magnetic field. And if, it, if the coils are, are vertical like this, then the, the field is, is horizontal. Now that field is, you know, is dependent on the size of your coils. How, how big the uniform field is, is dependent on the size of your coil. So if I wanted to, to build an experimental chamber as big as this table, where the animals could just sort of live here and and be tricked by us, I would need a, a very large coil, you know, something as, as big as this room. Wow. It's not out of the question, though, because the coil itself is cheap. All it is is a, 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 a bunch of wire. Um, and it's a, you know, a really simple, simple concept, you know, and, and uh, it's a bunch of wire and, and a big frame, I guess, to wrap it around. So... Uh, so that's that's what I'd really like to do because then you can those are much more manipulable than just sort of an array of, of rare earth magnets which are not manipulable. With the coil, you can change its strength and its and its and its polarity. So you can change you can make the animal think at this moment he's tilted this way. Now he's now he's flat and now he's tilted that way. Um, so that's that's one of the things I'd like to do. And no more putting them in burrows. Let them do their experiments. Well, they'll right be in burrows, but in burrows this deep. Uh -huh, there you go. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they'll be in the lab. Revocable burrows. Right. Exactly. Well, thank you so much. This has been such a great discussion. I hope to see you all next week. This has been UTSA's Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Home is where the vector. Yeah. That's a great title for a talk.